Well, we're looking at Ecclesiastes, in which the author, the preacher, undertakes this relentless investigation of life under the sun, of the meaning of life in a secular world where this life is all there is. And today we're looking at chapter three and this passage on time. And it's probably the most famous part of Ecclesiastes. Now, I know this is probably before most of us were even born, but in 1965, a song by the group The Birds made it to number one in the US charts. And what's interesting about that is their song, Turn, 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 is basically this passage set to music. But this passage is also famous because it's the kind of passage that gets read at funerals, isn't it? And it's that fact of death that the preacher wants us to face because he's putting life and the fleetingness of life and the can't quite get to grips with lifeness of life and that life in the face of death, he's putting that life under the microscope. And as he does so, he turns to this issue of time. But what is time? St Augustine said, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. But if I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. In other words, we all know what time is until we have to explain it, until we have to understand it. The one thing we understand though, is that we all want to be in control of our own time. First point then, masters of our time. Now just think how much of life is about time. I mean, the alarm goes in the morning telling you it's time to get up. Your phone vibrates in your pocket reminding you your appointment that you can't miss starts in one hour. The contract you sign tells you how many hours you are employed for or how long you have got until you've got to deliver the goods. Your supervisor tells you, you've got until this date to submit your paper. You plan a trip on a Saturday and you go to Google Maps to work out how long it will take you to get there. Maybe you become interested in that special other and they ask you, how old are you? Or you decide to get married and you set a date for the wedding. Or you start a family and you're asked, how many weeks till the baby's born? Life is all about time, isn't it? And in verses one to eight, the preacher gives us the whole span of life and its individual seasons. And he does it in 14 pairs. And in each pair, each season of life is the polar opposite of the other, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing. 
And if seven in the Bible is the number of completeness, and he is giving us 14, two sets of seven pairs, he's saying this is life in all its completeness. This is life in all its personal and relational complexity. Verse one, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. But he starts with the key issues of life, the key events of life. Verse two, a time to be born and a time to die. So there was a time when you entered the world and there would be a time when you leave it. But in between, there are these seasons, creative and destructive seasons of life. Verses two and three, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. There are seasons of emotional times in our lives. Verse four, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There are times when we're enjoying friends or facing enemies. Verse five, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now you might think, what has casting stones got to do with friendship? Well, in our village, when a farmer plows his fields, he piles all of the rocks that he has brought to the surface in the corner of the field. But what would he think if I went under dead of night and threw all of those rocks back into the field? Would he consider me a friend or an enemy? And the preacher is saying there are seasons in life when friends are all around, but there are also those other times when it feels like people are just throwing stones in your field or you are doing it to them. Then there are those times when we are taken up with possessions, with getting or getting rid of. Verse six, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. But it's not just about our attitude to stuff, but about our attitude to life itself. Verse seven, a time to tear your clothes in mourning and a time to sow, to re-sow those clothes and re-enter the life of the living, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. But finally, there are those times when it's our attitude to others that sets the seasons. Verse eight, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. But you know what's remarkable about this passage? It deals with the whole span of life and its seasons, and yet there is zero mention of God. Why? Because in a life under the sun, you don't have to entirely erase God from your life. You just have to get on with life without him. And if you think about it, that is how most people want to live their lives, isn't it? 
You know, when I was appointed to my last post as a doctor, I was offered a choice. I could either keep my own agenda and decide who I saw when, or my secretary could keep it for me. You know, it took me all of three nanoseconds to decide. Because why would I want anyone else telling me what I had to do when? I wanted to decide that. But we all do, don't we? We don't like the idea of someone else deciding how we use our time or how we should live our lives. In the past, if your dad was a farmer and he said, son, you are going to be a farmer, you'd go, sure, dad, where's the cow shed? But now we'd go, well, actually, dad, there's this degree in underwater software coding that I want to study. And the preacher says, verse four, there's a time to dance. But we say, yes, but I want to set the tune. We want to be masters of our own destinies. And that is the great promise of our age, isn't it? That you can be the master of your destiny. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American essayist, wrote way back in the 1880s, the only person you are destined to become is the person you decide to be. Your destiny is in your hands. The seasons of life are for you to shape. Peter Drucker, the famous management consultant wrote, you cannot predict the future, but you can create it. It's an enticing prospect, isn't it? The power to shape the poetry, the flow of your life. And I can decide for myself when or at what I weep or laugh. It's for me to decide who I do or do not embrace, not some other authority figure telling me that. When it comes to my life, I'm the authority. And as for a time to be born and a time to die, hey, we may not be able to determine the time of our birth, but increasingly, we want to decide the time of our death. Because what right has anyone else to say that this suffering, this season of suffering in my life must continue? It's my life, after all. Because life is about me as an empowered, free individual. And yet, Far from seeing such a view of life as empowering, the preacher sees it as an illusion. Second point, the tyranny of time. Quick maths quiz. What is one minus one? Answer, zero. Okay, look at verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? You go through all of these seasons of life, the preacher says, but in a world where there is no God, in a world where there is no eternity, what do you have to show for them? They all cancel each other out, don't they? What's planted is plucked up. What's built 
is knocked down. And the preacher is saying, yes, that is the sum total of all of our doing. It's zero. We congratulate ourselves on being free agents, unencumbered by the diktats of authority figures. But if there is no ultimate authority, if there is no God and no eternity, if this life really is all there is and death is the end, well, you haven't gained anything. They've all just cancelled each other out. You can live as varied a life as you like, picking your dream holiday destinations, changing your jobs or your career path, playing the market. But the time to die still comes. Sure you came, you saw, but you didn't conquer. Death conquered you and the worms enjoyed the feast. And besides, the preacher is saying, the idea of us being in control is an illusion. Verse 2. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So we might say, hey, it's for me to decide when to plant. Sure, says the preacher, go ahead and try. Try planting in winter and see what comes of your flowers. Or try picking fruit before the blossoms have formed on the tree and see how your harvest goes. There are times for these things that you have no control over. So the seasons themselves are telling you you're not in control at all. In other words, life is not like a car that you're driving. It's like a river that is carrying you along. You see, Peter Drucker can tell you that the future is yours to create. But what control did Peter Drucker have over his DNA that determined his intellect and his success? What control did he have over the lives of those who intersected with his own and who helped make him what he became? And the preacher is saying, far from you creating your future yourself, your future is determined by a succession of times that you have no way of designing. And at least some neurobiologists would agree, wouldn't they? The BBC recently asked the question, is there such a thing as free will? No, the neurobiologists replied. Your emotional reactions, your decision-making are merely pre-programmed neuronal impulses to various external stimuli. So in a secular materialistic world, the influencers tell you, you are free, make your own decisions, create your own future. While all the time the neurobiologists are whispering behind their hands, actually, you're just a body carried along by predetermined chemical reactions, none of which you have any control over. And meanwhile, the pendulum of time keeps swinging, doesn't it? Back and forth across those 14 pairs and your life slowly ebbs away and you can't stop it. Dolly Parton once said, 
People are always asking me, what do you want people to say about you a hundred years from now? I always say, I want them to say, dang, don't she still look good for her age? More realistically, the actress Jane Fonda said, women are not forgiven for ageing, but time and ageing are themselves unforgiving, aren't they? There's a relentlessness about them. As Chaucer said, time and tide wait for no man. The flow of the river of time may be gentle, but it's a gentle tyranny, gently carrying you towards the cliff edge of death, bearing all before it. The seasons last, the preacher says, verse 12, only as long as they live. I recently read a very sad, touching article by Tim Challies, who is a pastor and a blogger, and his 20-year-old son died just last year, just a few months before his wedding day. And he describes that heartbreaking moment when he visited the gravestone for the first time. And there, engraved on the stone, was his son's name, and underneath his name, his dates of birth, and death. And in between those dates was a line. And Challies asked, how long is that line? A few centimetres? But like verses one to eight, that line represented the entire life of his beloved son. All his growing up, all his hopes, all his dreams, all his friendships reduced to that line. How long is that line for any of us, he asked, and what will fill that line? Verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So it's not just that there's no gain from life if death is the end, and it's not just that the seasons of life are outside of our control. It's that you don't know how long the line of your life is going to be. You can't see the end from the beginning. And that means in a world without God, you can never know the point or the meaning of your life, can you? You can never stand far enough back to see the full scope of your life, where it's all heading, what it's all about. To do that, you'd have to be able to step outside of time. But in an under-the-sun world, there is no outside of time, because there is no eternity. And yet, you want to know what the point and the meaning of your life is, don't you? You want that above the sun, outside of time, view of your life. And you want that, the preacher says, verse 11, because God has put eternity into man's heart. That desire to know and to understand the end from the beginning. But a secular, scientific, materialistic worldview 
leaves you standing outside a locked door to a room which you know contains the meaning to it all, to all the seasons of life that you go through. And such a worldview tells you there's no key to the door. In fact, the room is empty. But what if it's not empty? What if there is a key to the door? What if there is a view to be had from above the sun? What if you not being in control could be a thing of hope, not of terror? Last point then, the Lord of time. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something beautiful, isn't there, about verses one to eight and the pairings and the repetition and the cadence of it all. But why do you think that this or anything is beautiful? Where does your sense of beauty come from? Why prefer beauty to ugliness or order to chaos? I mean, can blind chance and the meaninglessness of an under-the-sun world give you that? No, says the preacher. Even your enjoyment of this poetry tells you that there is such a thing as beauty, and it is pointing you to a higher beauty. Verse 11 again. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's not just talking about poetry, but about the fittingness of life's seasons, that at various times some things are just right to do and other things are wrong. And you know from your own life what that's like. Someone suggests doing something and you go, no, I don't think it's the right time. Maybe next year. But in a meaningless world, why should any action have a right or a wrong time? And yet instinctively, you know that they do. So even the way that you do life tells you there is a way things should be. There's an order, a purpose, a poetry to life. And that tells you that there must be a poet, an orderer, an author of life. And the preacher says yes, and when you realise that, it makes both the span and the seasons of life make way more sense. Verse 11 again. The seasons of our lives are what God has done. In other words, Far from your life being under your own tenuous control and it always slipping out of your fingers, far from you being at the mercy of the tyranny of time, God is the architect who holds the blueprint of your life. As David said, my times are in your hand. And ask yourself, whose hands would you rather be in? blind fate or a loving heavenly father who orders all things? And what makes most sense of that sense of eternity in your heart? That this world is all there is and there is no eternity? Or that there is and instinctively you seek it? 
What makes most sense of your interest in life after death or the supernatural or even superpowers? That none of those exist? Or that there is life after death and the supernatural and superpowers do exist? Well, sure, you might say, but if my life is in God's hands, how could he let this stuff happen to me like he does? Because, says the preacher, we only get to see part of the picture. We stand in front of the tapestry of our lives that God is weaving, and all we can see is this little part that maybe, possibly looks like the sun might occasionally be shining on it, but then there's also this part where it all looks dark and grey and it's all shadow. And the preacher is saying you will only see the full picture when you can see it from God's perspective. When you can stand far enough back. Until then, you've got to trust him. Trust him? Why should I trust him when my life feels more pulling up and weeping and mourning than planting and laughing and dancing? Why? Because God doesn't stand aloof and detached from what it means to live in time. Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. And all along, Jesus knew that he had come for a specific time. And it wasn't a time for dancing. Repeatedly he said, my time has not yet come. Until it did come. And on the evening of his last supper, John writes, Jesus knew his hour had come. And he said to his disciples, my time is at hand. And Paul writes, For while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now who would you rather trust? Yourself, knowing that in reality you have no meaningful control over your life? Blind fate? Or the God who loves you so much, he would come and enter time and at the right time when you could never save yourself, he died for you. The God who sees your life in a centimetre, all those seasons that you're ashamed of and those seasons that you should be ashamed of, the God who bears them all at the cross. You see, in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And you can stumble through life under the illusion of controlling everything. Or you can face the facts of an under-the-sun world and despair at the pointlessness of time. Or... You can look to Christ and find in him all your beginnings and endings, all your stories in his one great story. Verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink 
and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You see, when it dawns on you that God is in control of all of these seasons of my life and all the details are his gifts to me for this moment, then you can begin to find joy in the midst of it all. And you'll become less stressed when things aren't happening in the time frame that you want them to happen. And when you find yourself in a season that you don't want to be in, you will know that Christ loves you, loves you enough to die for you, and that he is working this season for your good. So you'll know peace in that season. Plus, you will be able to take and to enjoy seasons of rest. Because when you know that Christ died for you at the right time, when you were still a sinner, you know God doesn't approve of you because you work so hard. He approves of you because of Jesus, which means you can put your work down. For Christmas, Sue gave me a book called Every Moment Holy, and it's a book of prayers and liturgies for the mundane things of life. But listen, when you realise that all of your seasons, all of them, are God's gifts to you, then not even the mundane ones are pointless. Suddenly, every moment becomes holy. Even, the book says, changing diapers. And the writer, Douglas McKelvey, says, Open my eyes, that I might see this act for what it is, from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart. How the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. And the preacher would say, exactly. That's what you see when you step far enough back. That as you trust God, all these seasons can become heart and world changing for you and for those around you. And knowing that can give you a sense of security and purpose that a secular worldview can never give you. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. Face the facts of an under-the-sun world, and you'll either have to bury your head in the sand and try not to think too much about it, or you will become consumed by despair or anxiety. But look to God, the potentate of time, the preacher says, and fear him. He holds your times in his hands. He is in absolute sovereign control of it all. And he loves you. And when you fear him, you don't need to fear anything else, not even time.